ஸ்ரீபாதோ சம்மோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோரோதோர
the attention. So one begins to see that by recognizing form is really an ephemeral conditioned thing. It's con- your experience of form is conditioned by attention. Then, and then beginning to recognize when there's dispassion, what brings around dispassion, beginning to see the impermanence of form, and then beginning to contemplate the feeling tone, the sensation, or what we call the, the excitement tone, the, the arousal, or the, or the curling away, the, the not liking, the liking, the not the favoring, the, the, the withdrawing back, or the, the pushing forward of, of, of feeling. So in the second tetrad, we start to contemplate um, this uh, feeling by deliberately um, exercising a quality of feeling tone, just dependent upon a conscious suffusion of the heart to exercise the mind, to work the mind, work the mind's attention so the mind comes um, alive, attention comes alive. And then you permeate, you move it around, and the sense of that you actually experience a feeling tone just dependent upon that. So this naturally, when we see this, when we begin to experience this, then the way that the feeling tone gets hooked onto passive sense impingement, that is just keep putting something into your mind, your mind sort of sits back and receives things. Until you get kind of sweet, sour, tasty, soft, whatever happening in it, and then that particular pleasant quality, or then you get sharp, bitter, cold, and then the the the, the, the pleasant or the unpleasant feeling dependent upon pure upon sense contact. We begin to see how feeling can be dependent just upon work of mind. So this naturally tends to, to cause one to question where does feeling come from and how much is one caught with feeling, how much is one uh, searching for feeling, not quite getting enough of the good ones, how much is one kind of always not, you know, hungry for feeling and is it possible to, 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 to begin to cultivate this pleasant feeling just in the mind alone which is cheaper than most forms of (laughs) (laughs) but not so difficult not so easy to get though But actually, a more more lasting and sustaining and, and nourishing quality of pleasant feeling, something that isn't just so so um, spasm, spasmodic. You know, this kind of sudden hit and then a waning pattern. You get something that can, you can extend into, and you can soften it into something like ease, which is has an extensive and uh, a beautiful quality. Because also the mind is an, ex- an exceptionally receptive. Um, state in order to begin to experience this. So it's like you know that the mind is very soft and receptive, and the feeling saturates it's an expansive ease. So then we begin to see, well, is it the feeling? Isn't that that's dependent on some qualities of attention and and perceptions? You know, so having a perception of, of breath, having a perception of something that's that's light or bright, and working on it. (coughs) This begins to make us realize, instinctively rather than intellectually, that the third tetrad of mind is perhaps the key to all of it. You know, things are dependent upon mind, or what we do with our mind, and how you work the mind, about whether the mind is stressed or at ease, 
whether the mind is actively engaged or passively dumped upon, whether its engagement is something that's that's you know pure and equanimous, or whether it's kind of snatching and, and crotchety or grasping and uh, or, or impatient. So then this the, the third tetrad and the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind. And then that we begin to see that the possibility of of cleaning, nourishing, massaging, polishing, purifying mind is the most reliable uh, way for our own well-being, peace of mind, happiness. And you have a way of doing it. You have a way of doing it, working on a particular object, breath, which is a simple form, which has associated, which 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 can condition particular feelings. So this means that naturally there is an increasing sense of of dispassion and dis, um, even disinterest in um, external stimulation, and also a feeling of um, peacefulness within. Um, negative stimulation because we've got something to to abide in we have a firm place to live in where the storms don't get in reviewing the experience contemplating impermanence contemplating dispassion contemplating cessation so contemplating or recognizing um, cessation of certain things, stopping of things. Now this in particular is most significant for what's called the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the mental patterns, we could say the psychology, we could say the neurosis, we could say um, the way the mind works. Um, and of course in terms of cessation, the cessation of suffering, we're looking at the cessation of the things that bring us suffering. Um, and this, you know, is, is what we call the hindrances, covetousness, greed with its essential underlying quality of need, neediness being needy. So that, that unsatisfied needy drive. Mm. Which makes us feel you know unsatisfied and then covetous, and then the kind of unpleasantness that sets up for ourselves and other beings ill will um, hostility, aversion, cynicism, dismissiveness, um, fear these kinds of things, the stopping of those, doubt, wavering, havering, dithering, flurry, not certain, not, no security, no strength, no confidence. Mm. To live a life in doubt is, is pitiful. One can never really know anything unless one has the confidence to be able to just step in and have a go and stay with it and witness it. So the mind actually won't go in, it's inhibited by, by doubt, is is not able to, to learn or live properly. Dullness, the, the unwilling, unwilling mind, the unwilling heart, that doesn't want to be here, too much, too, you know, can't be bothered. This uh, is a is a unpleasant state of mind, sticky, heavy. Not no joy, no creativity in it, no sparkle, no no warmth, no flexibility. Uh, limp, dull, sticky thing. 
and um, restlessness, the flurry, worry, flustered states. These five hindrances. Now, then, the concept this this whether we have much we want to have a refined or an understanding of Buddha Dharma is or unrefined is these are these are your kind of common ground of what what it makes life wretched. So everything everything else is all right really. It wasn't for these things. <laughs> And yet, of course, these things get pasted onto him and her and the weather and the job and the this and the that and the other. You know, they get stuck on everything. It's really out there somewhere. That's the problem. And maybe when you, you, go, you, know, you go places or you just change your attitudes a bit and you see, sometimes you can kind of, you know, if your mind's in the right place, it's being cold and wet's all right. You know, when you're kind of out camping and enjoying yourself or something like that. Quite all right, you know. It's just so what? It doesn't really matter. I remember somebody telling me they were going, going on two dong, these kind of long walking tours that monks and nuns do, and they, you know, this person had to, you know, just always keep these things really anonymous. Had to do lots of hill climbing in, in, I think it was in the Scotland or the Northern England. So you have to climb up these hills, panting and sweating, and you know feet blistering and muscles and the legs all kind of ag- agonised, belting rain, and then you know you've got these long things you don't get washed for days, and then so your skin's all greasy and stinking, your clothes stink, your feet stink, your socks stink and are wet. And you're eating things like kind of cold rice pudding out of cans, <laughs> you know, and, you're, and you're, you can keep going. And then to say, like, actually to walk from them getting back to the monastery and, you know, having baths and things like that, and then having to walk, like, 500 metres from one part of the monastery to the other part of the monastery, well, I have to do this every day. Feeling, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you look at the food, you go, oh, beans again. <laughs> you know, what, what happened, you know? Because, of course, when you're doing something for your own, your own energy, you know, how your attention is changed, isn't it? You're thinking, this, and I'm out here, I'm doing this, this is, you know, you're really putting yourself into it. Then this other stuff just, it's there, but you, your mind just brushes it off, like a, it rolls off, like, like water of a duck's back. But then when you're dumped into something, in a passive thing, then your mind starts to whinge, and, well, it's not happening to me, I never get my share of <laughs> So then the hindrances take over. This is where, like, if you don't, if one doesn't energize the mind with this this work, and this meditation is hard work in many ways, and I don't, you know, I don't make no bones about it. This is, I don't really, you know, kind of these retreats. I don't bother to make it that that easy. <laughs> Can't do it because you have to work. You have to have pain, misery. <laughs> So then your mind gets strong, it's tough, but then your mind will actually strengthen up with it. And then you, you find, yeah, this is better actually to get some strength going and then come from my own initiative. Then you, you realize you can, you can shrug these, these conditions, <laughs> sensory conditions, you can, you can get past them. You feel joy being released from it, being released <laughs> from a kind of cramped, moaning mind where the, the hindrances then don't take root. The mind is kind of cramped and passive and moaning, it's like a, it's, it goes mouldy easily. You get the mildew of the hindrances all over it. If you exercise it and get it out there in the air, then the mildew doesn't get on it. So when you contemplate cessation, things that, that aren't there, the stopping of, of, of aversion, <coughs> when it stops, it's there sometimes, and then when it's not there. Or restlessness when it's or dullness when it's there and when it's not there, and then begin to see, understand, figure out, realize what are the supportive conditions for the, the cessation of dullness, the supportive conditions for the cessation of 
of craving before this conditions the cessation of ill will. And often it's, it's extending, isn't it? It's, it takes a little bit of effort. And sometimes extending one's wisdom, extending one's sphere of compassion, that's some way in which instead of just you know being dumped on by things, we, we move against them. We move into areas that are perhaps challenging. So when you have doubt in your mind and you, you're kind of cowed by it, then you should try to go to the doubt and, and challenge it and question it. Say, who, who are you? And you know, the demand of these hindrances, always demanding food and succor. Help me, cure me, make me feel nice. You know. <laughs> and then to go, go against it. So, you know, who are you? Who do you belong to? Doubt. So the, these things like mindfulness obviously is a key that one actually there's an engaged, steady attention, which is the quality of mindfulness, investigation of Dhamma. So a mental pattern like a hindrance is investigated. It's not just it's not just quavered in front of or, or, or believed. It's, it's challenged. It's, it's investigated. We're not necessarily kind of fighting these things, but you know, so I'm not. It's not just a violent thing. It's also that sustained inquiry and investigation into it, rather than just kind of going along with them. So in a mind that has in, has this faculty, naturally, energy is pulled up by investigation. Energy is aroused by investigation, so you get energy. When the mind is energized, it develops pity, rapture. So that when we when we find the, the mind that has gone to the point of being able to cultivate energy and rapture through these means has become impervious to the hindrances. So the, the, what they call the, the, the quality of the first base of meditation or the first jhana is that it's impervious to the hindrances. You know, when you have pity and sukha and the mind is focused and it's been done in this way, then this stuff doesn't, it's like a Buddha said, it's like a, a well-thatched roof that the rain doesn't penetrate. So then, you have, then they have stability and increasing confidence and increasing sense of conviction. So this naturally becomes the basis for the the pamoja, the gladdening of the, what's called gladdening the mind. When seeing the mind, when the mind is free from a hindrance, then it's not shaking and shimmering. It's something that's been lifted up by that practice. So when you know, contemplate the mind, you're able to experience the mind in that way. And then it's lifted up by recognizing, by contemplating the cessation of your will or the cessation of restlessness. So do, if one can do this, even even you know you haven't got everything sorted out, even just like you've 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 stopped something occurring as frequently as it used to do, or you know, you're not sorted in all five, but you've got you know you give one is very firmly much much diminished, or it only occurs around particular things. You know, so you have this specific instances of the hindrances are called um, kilesa or being have a marmalade kilesa maybe you know <laughs> or a Birkenstock kilesa or a you know a kind of Rolex wristwatch kilesa but you, you know you're called out on lots of things but you still this thing about marmalade or uh, so of course one can you know that's where you don't have any problem with peanut butter anymore or uh, you know, or other things, you know. Yeah, so this is still some sort of achievement, actually, if you manage to transcend peanut butter. <laughs> it's a very superior kind of experience to attain the peanut butter. <laughs> so this kind of, the cessation of, uh, is, to be, is, is also to be contemplated, to be looked at. And not, so if we don't do this, then we don't, uh, we don't give, give our Dhamma practice enough food. You don't sustain it. One has to contemplate, you know, I've forgiven this. I've forgiven that person. You know, that person is not someone who I have this instinctive aversion to or fear of or distaste for. That's cleared out. And you know, contemplate yeah, that experience of 
the image of that person, then no ill will. And then, you know, stay with that, that, that particular, that particular experience. You really contemplate that cessation of, of that karmic problem that one had. That one, if it wasn't stopped, that wasn't stopped, then that karma continues. Every time that perception comes up, you get a particular volitional intention. You don't necessarily act upon it. You want to kick them in the head or you, you hate them or something. And you get this kind of, then if, you, if that isn't stopped, sometime or another, you know, if that isn't stopped, then this always means that the potential for, for ill will and hatred is given another, another handhold. The mind will be will be substantially less able to experience joy and lightness with these kind of ghosts in the cupboard that we haven't cleared out. So, um, contemplating the mental patterns, realizing their significance, and the patterns of hindrances, and also the patterns of dhamma practice, the enlightenment factors, and even the process of dhamma. So contemplating, this is stopped, this is not here. Yeah. And then this factor of enlightenment is present, this hindrance is not present. It's this kind of ongoing, on looking, so that once the process of the practice is properly attuned to, aligned to, These things uh, wear down slowly. There's a graduated wearing down of these um, a bondage of attachment and being caught. And say that the ongoing thing is to keep wearing down the ignorance, the delusion, the denials, the bluffing, the distractedness, the not seeing. So mindfulness is that you know, the primary tool is always, always, always uh, needed, never redundant, to just keep wearing down the, the activity of ignorance, the asava of ignorance, which is that, that kind of smearing of attention with, with ignorance. And then gradually the calm asava, or the sense, sense asava, is something that is gradually worn down, through recognizing these signs, impermanence towards form, experience of form, dispassion, even recognizing the impermanence of passion and the insubstantiality of it, so it takes away some of its thunder. So that gradual diminution of this, to the point when it's the, the, the process is one where the, the, the sense of being something, or the rebirth, or the birth, the state, the kind of station of the mind, is, is, can be, you know, the Buddha described this as, as the stations of the mind move towards enlightenment, towards first of all, the mind no longer sustains wrong views about personality. It doesn't take that on. Um, so that, that, that kind of Ignorance, that sense of being some kind of permanent lump thing of a person is something that is a, is a, is a, a gross kind of wrong, wrong view. And without, without this, we're not able to, to honestly and authenticate change within ourselves. We get stuck in a rut. We don't want to shift. And increasing diminution of, of, um, aversion and greed. So that um, for one who cultivates, there will always be a fruit of of some kind, and the first fruit is that one will not be reborn in some really hell hell realm. You know that the mind's violence, when hatred becomes violent cruelty. You know that that no longer that no longer pertains, or becomes kind of libidinous craving that no longer pertains. So that this 
the grossest forms of the so that they say that the, the one who is firmly entered upon the path will not enter these kind of hell realms, the stream enter the stream winner, and so on. And the, so the once returned is someone who will not enter into any realm of sense desire. You know. So just consider these things in one's practice. Any practice will always bear fruit, but the fruit has to be acknowledged. You know, the, how much, for a start, how much is one holding on to an image or an impression of oneself? When does that pertain and when, do, when does it not pertain? Is there willingness to allow ourselves to change, to not keep being me and the way I am and my idiosyncrasies? And, you know, trying to make the, so the world actually sustains me in some kind of particular character. The firmness of self, can we allow ourselves to be a little more anonymous to ourselves even? Mm. More a matter of something that changes, processes that change. So that then the, the, what can be seen or contemplated then are factors, are conditions and causes. So then this is, this is really where the path begins and begin to rather keep locking into I am this, I am that, I shouldn't be this, I should be that, or that's just the way I am. We're seeing this is the experience of, you know, the mindfulness is weak, the mindfulness is strong, the investigation faculty is weak, the investigation faculty is strong, there's fear, fear is present, you know, the fear is absent, there's joy, the joy is present, joy is absent. So that we're looking at this blend of experience rather than some kind of you know person lump, the person pack, I think it's called in one of these early translations. It's kind of curious, but the person lump. Yeah. I'm looking also good to keep um, in in the in the practice. When you begin to establish a practical and more, as you develop familiarity with it, then reviewing, say for for finding the foundation, the um, finding the first base, the first firm base of meditation, uh, is the pro, is the experience, is the vitaka, is that sense of focusing, is that present? If not, then you must make this present first. You must begin to make this present for you. Really find something to hold, something to touch. If you can't find something subtle, find something coarse. If you can't find something that's that internal, then at least do it externally. Focus your eyes upon something. Use a mantra, use, a, use an image, but you must just get the, some sense of the, the mind being able to focus and hold attention. Ritaka. First thing, vichara is this present or is absent? Is the mind allowed and encouraged to move around an object, to feel it out, to explore? Perhaps when it's weak, the mind moves around and slips off altogether. Daydreams. Then the vitaka bringing it back. So these two are they balancing? Is the, is the mind, you know, exploring and then, you know, going off on Star Trek somewhere? Or is it? held so tight that you can't actually feel anything. Your mind's kind of gone into some numb state, like a rabbit in front of a snake. <laughs> Holding your object because this is what you're supposed to do. But you haven't actually felt what that thing is. So these two, Vitaka Vichara, are balancing each other out. And then, so this is your, uh, the kind of, you know, ABC, if you like. And it's... Um, Mm-hmm. But it's not to be disregarded. It's humbling, but it's it's something that you know is required. Anapanasati gives you something that's it's definitely there. The breath. It's an object. It's not. You know. It's quite an advanced object. It's not. It's not that. It's not that coarse. It's subtle, but it's present. So it really requires some work to do it. As you work on it. Extending your attention to the large, opening your attention to large, seeing if you can sustain a large focus, 
then getting to the finest point here within that within that field of attention, the finest point of the breath. And so that if you like the this you know, if you're going to the very centre point of your attention span and then opening your attention span up to the whole breath, fine sharpening it, refining it right down to just the the tiniest, finest point of a breath. So this exercising it. This is what will bring around the, the sense of, of rapture dependent upon work of mind. And then sort of moving moving that. We can move past the boundaries of our sensations. So if you're contemplating the breath and you feel the in-breath and then the stopping and that sense of slight tightening as your breath stops and then relaxing and the breath breathes out gets to the, to the end of the breath and that coming up against the boundary there tightening again sense of sensation just kind of tightening up then relaxing and then in-breathing so we seem to experience the breath within that. What I suggest is when, when, you, when you get uh, familiar with that span, try to breathe through those, those edges. So you feel like the breath is something like those, the breath can, can permeate the edges of, of those sensations. So if we visualize or imagine or get the heart, get this kind of semi-impression in the back of the mind of the breath moving within some kind of frame, like a bag or something. You can feel it swell, you can feel it tighten, as, as you imagine air within a balloon. And then making it so that that bag is now porous, so the air can, can, can permeate through it. So you soften that edge. This is... Um, um, the skill of this is that it begins to work on the perception of the breath. The breath is now no longer a, a physical process. We're now looking at it as a mental impression, an impression of relationship to sensation. And we're beginning to work on breath as a, as a perception, as an energy, as a mental impression that you can then move through this form. Hmm? You can move it beyond through the sensation. You can soften a sensation with the breath. You can calm a sensation with the breath. You can energize a sensation with your breath, with the mental impression of the breath. So this establishes the mental impression breath that becomes then a, a, a steady perception in your mind. You have a mental impression, just like the the memory of someone, you, you bring your mind to bear upon one particular person, then you can sustain that impression if you keep putting energy into it. You can sustain that impression as a continual reference. And it's an impression that's to do with a visual quality, but it's also to do with, a, with a, an attention quality and a heart quality. So you notice you have a perception of a person that may be of, of warmth or friendliness, or maybe even regret, you know, loss. And that, that emotion or that feeling is, a, is an inherent aspect of what sustains the perception. If you took that feeling away, the image, which is perhaps quite ephemeral, would, be, would, would fall. It's, it's sustained by the, by the mind's gearing up to its own feeling, its own feeling tone, its... its it's sankhara, it's conditioning. Yeah? So the condition is one of, of happiness or regret or fondness or distaste or whatever. It's so that, that mental conditioning is the thing that sustains the impression in your mind. Just as when we hear of the death or the misfortune of someone we know very well, there's a very strong and you know, it really stabs into you. Whereas if you hear, you know, maybe, say there was a disaster in India and some village got swept by a flood, and you can think, oh, that's terrible. 
But it doesn't, it doesn't hit you as hard as your dog getting distemper. Because <laughs> you don't have, you don't, you haven't got such a clear perception and you're not so bonded to that. You're not conditioned by a village in India. It's not to say one is no compassion for it, but you, you don't get the same strong image. So these perceptions, such as the perception of the breath, or, or a nimitta as it's called, a sign, is a mixture of a form, and actually the form is not the main part of it. The main part of it is the mind's energy and you know, the, the, the quality of attention. One is attentive, very attentive, and there is a particular feeling tone. The feeling tone associated with when, when this happens with the breath is, is pleasure and rapture. Otherwise, you, you, can't, you, don't, you don't get a perception of the breath. Otherwise, you don't get a steady perception of the breath. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's only the, the quality of, of rapture and, and pleasantness that is, is able to give you a sustained impression of the breath. Why, again, Anapanasati is very skillful because you can't actually get it wrong like that. Whereas if you start visualizing things, any old thing, you can get it wrong. You know, you can actually sustain uh, an unskillful mental attention. Lust, cruelty, fear, you know, all subtle attenuations of these. But with the breath, you, it doesn't work like that. It has to be you know, something that's pleasant and light and easy. So that the nimitta or the breathing sign or the breathing perception is essentially arises out of a, an experience of the breath that is pleasant, is rapturous. With the quietening of this, the steadying of the dispassion towards it and the quietening of it, then we begin to see what a key role attention itself is. Actually, the most significant feature of all this is just attention, attention, attention. Attention, manasikara, which is sustained by intention, that is, you, you're certainly doing it, you're certainly engaged, mm. engaged attention. So in, in the kind of dispassion towards that quality of ease, one begins to feel comfortable with it, it's no longer something that you're, it's so special or extraordinary. Then you become more aware just of or what becomes more obvious and more apparent is the quality of, of attention. So you, you come to the mind itself rather than the condition of the mind, rather than the feeling tone of the mind. You come to the quality of the mind, which is attention and intention. This, I guess, is, we would say, where these two meet is where you have mind, where you have jitta, intention and attention. And in, out of intention and intention, this is the place where perception, feeling, contact impressions, they will all they orbit around this place. Where there's no attention, there's no perception. If you're not, if you're not, if you're not there, you don't feel the contact. You, know, you don't. So you, you only feel contact impressions where your attention is, and your, where where your attention has been directed. So if you, you know, your foot arises because you say stand up. It doesn't rise when you're watching your breath. Does it? <laughs> Oh, thank you. I swear, there must be somebody for whom you know. <laughs> but, you know, normally it doesn't. Because <laughs> your attention isn't there. But it does when you, you stand up, when you walk. If it, you know. This understanding of conditionality, things manifest because of, of supportive conditions. This is a very, this is a key 
feature of the Buddha's teaching is conditionality. If it were not for conditionality, there would be no liberation. Because it's recognizing that the state of dukkha rests upon conditions. It's supported by the conditions which come around through ignorance. With ignorance as the primary modus operandi of the mind, it is the supportive matrix of the mother, the father. Let's not get sexist about this. For um, conditions that are that bring around suffering, and similarly, when there is an abolishing of ignorance, it's the basis for the conditions that bring around liberation. Liberation is a conditioned process, and ignorance, suffering, is a conditioned process. So then, it's important to recognise what conditions bring around suffering. You know, specifically, what does ignorance kindle? Desire fear, aversion, these obvious things, and then subtler things. Mm. Um, what what is a, mi- a mind that is uh, able to, to repel or free itself, suspend at least the power of the hindrances, one or two or diminish them but ideally suspend them um, is able to see something uh, a supportive condition for suffering that is not so normally apparent it hovers in the background um, it's, it's not a passionate thing it's not a feeling thing it's a state thing it's bhava being something So this is also a foundation for suffering because being something implies not being something else. It implies a resistance to other things. It implies a holding on to certain things that sustain that. You know, taking a position repels other positions. Uh, contrasts with other positions. Has an opinion about other positions. Doesn't see other positions. Becomes stubborn becomes contemptuous, becomes arrogant, you know, in its coarse, coarsest extent, becomes egocentric, becomes I am this. Yeah. So this is the state. This is not, uh, it may give rise to certain feelings, certain feelings support it, but it is a state. And um, these, so these two, the karma or the sense experience and the the state of being are also interdependent. Um, but this takes some reviewing to recognize. Um, the quality of Bhava is such that even and there's a, a being something in the sense sphere is based upon some kind of sense impressions which we either um, favor or, or dislike. So we, we tend to become the finer sense impressions. Or then you get the finer mental impressions, a sense of um, peacefulness or a sense of luminosity. These become basis for being something. Admittedly, you know, being luminous is not to be sniffed at. Uh, better than being turgid and miserable. <laughs> so if you want to be something, then I certainly vote for that one. You know, full on. Have my support for it. Um, there are various suttas which kind of illustrate this this um, bhava experience, you know, so that, that this is something that pertains even to the highest levels, uh, where you get so in the Buddhist cosmology, there's often an, an external map of the internal dimensions of the mind. So you get the sense realm, just as you get the sense the mind that's concerned and obsessed with sensory phenomena, you get the formless realms, where the, it's more into subtle forms, such as subtle shades of feeling, luminosity, expansiveness, space, clarity, these kinds of things. You know. And so in the cosmology you get the devalokas, which are the kind of refined senses. They're not into Guinness anymore. They're more on that kind of level of, of loop playing and, and um, grape nectar. Uh, 
instead it kind of moves up and up and up. So you get to the extremely refined ones who are, you know, kind of you know, poetry and things like that, or subtler than that. Just just enjoying the thickness of the movement of of a, of a mood or of a thought. And then you get the Brahma Loka, which are more like to do with jhana realms, meditative absorptions, states of loving kindness. They come through that. Yeah. So these kind of vast, luminous, radiant um, be, um, experiences uh, of Brahma Loka. And the Buddha said even this is, is, is suffering. <laughs> or dukkha rather suffering is too coarse a word it's, it's a, in that it's got boundaries to it it's, um, it's something that believes in itself and perhaps it's the case the strange um, state, uh, state is that, that the finer the feeling and the more sublime the feeling the more sublime and finer the perception and perhaps even more arduously it is you know, one has arrived that perception, the more tenaciously one feels one is it, you know. So you get the state of, you know, I am, I am the enlightened, I am bliss, I am whatever, you know, that state, my true nature. Um, so it, uh, it limits, it, it, it freezes. Mm. Why the human realm, which you can never really get involved in anything for too long, is considered to be the place where the Buddha gave most of his teachings in this realm. Because this is the realm where you never really get a chance to get that, become anything for too long, or somebody rudely awakens you from it. And there's quality that uh, um, is to be regularly contemplated is this state of being something is dependent upon something. Yeah. So this is where this kind of the Dhamma of dependent arising is significant. This state of being is dependent upon luminosity. This state of I am is dependent upon joy. This state of I am is dependent upon rapture. This state of I am is dependent upon clarity. It's dependent upon something else. So it's not what it can't be a unity because it's resting on something else. Yeah. It's a condition. Yeah. The state of tranquility is conditioned. It can't be what I am because it's something that's arisen and come around and has been worked upon, is affected, is brought around. And therefore it must when the causes die out, when the conditions wane, then it will go. So even Brahma locus go down eventually like huge zeppelins. <laughs> so, you know, punctured and gradually deflate and go down. <laughs> Still saying I am as <laughs> 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 they go. <laughs> or even I was <laughs> So the understanding of conditioning, and this is something that I'm giving is an idea at the moment, you know, or maybe one sees it in some instances, it's to be thoroughly explored, thoroughly explored, felt out. This, is that. this depends on that. This is a condition. What mindfulness, the investigation of dhammas, there's a sustaining factor. And equanimity is don't buy anything, you know, is acknowledging well, I'm, I'm in this particular space now because of having done that, because of being supported in this way, because of being nourished, because of being warm, because of being healthy, because of you know having some intelligence, because of hearing the Dhamma, because of da-da-da-da, supportive conditions arise. Therefore, this. So, this brings around this, this kind of quality of um, relinquishment, 
that mitzaga, relinquishment as a, as a way, of, as a gesture of the mind, relinquishment as a way of life. Relinquishment is this, sometimes self-effacement, self-surrender, giving up, letting go on the deepest level of that I am. Not in some, not that, to deny the validity of this experience, just to take away the pride, to take away the conceit, to rub out that, that trace. And not, you know, and of course, if one has cultivated to the point of the mind being still, this is indeed praiseworthy, beautiful. I mean, one has done many skillful things. It must bear excellent fruit. But the Buddha's saying, you know, now don't, when, it, when it's at this point, you know, if you could just, you know, just rub, just ease off on that holding it, then, you know, this is the highest, this is the best, this is what I really recommend. The best kind of clinging is to this, but the ideally, try to understand clinging, feeding on something, being fed by something, feeding on something, sustaining self upon something, and then to to abandon it by recognizing that if it's fed, it can't be something permanent, absolute, real, unchanging, it can't be ultimate. So the Buddha said uh, the complete relinquishment of all upadana, of all feeding on, is the deathless. This, um, in a way, like these other features, these other aspects, relinquishing is something that is, is an ongoing aspect of practice. You know, a certain degree of renunciation is something we undertake as a norm in Dhamma practice. Renunciation, first of all, of, of unwholesome things. And then even of some things that are, are, are okay, morally okay, but just to cultivate renunciation, simplicity. Here, the eight precepts, the silences, and then renunciation of one's independence, letting go of a little bit of that, meeting in a group, following a routine, relinquishing, relinquishing oneself in this way. Uh, and, you know, there's some grit there, isn't there? There's a bit of, mm, maybe it's okay for a week, you know, you try it for a lifetime. <laughs> But it's not to say that this, this feature is, is something that's purely reserved for retreats or monastic life, you know. It's to look at your commitments as, instead of being pressures on you, as opportunities to relinquish things, relinquish one's time, relinquish one's, you know. So when you have commitments and duties, try to be aware and clear what, you re- what is good, what is real, what is important for you. Stay with that and then relinquish the doubt or the feeling that one's life should be about doing something else or I can't be bothered, these kinds of things. And then any, anything you do in life will be, has its beauty, will be, will be beautiful, will be a place of practice for you. It becomes sacred then. Relinquishment is what makes things sacred. A little bit of me dies. That's the sacrifice that brings around sacredness. So this is where, of course, this whole process, you know, fans out for deep reflection. And Apanasati gives us a kind of a, a contained and sustained, you know, contained and locatable area, locatable zone for this, you know, the breath, the body, feeling, mind. And then, and then we begin to learn the lessons and you've got a chance to calm down, settle down, look very close up to it. So you know these things for sure. They're not just dogma. You know these things, you know how they feel, you know you can do them. And then the heart is educated in terms of dhamma, and we can begin to to really fill out our lives with this beauty of this teaching. We can breathe our lives. 
instead of holding them. While we have this chance together, and to always come back to this simplicity of the breath, form, sensation, feeling, attention, and then just keep cultivating these things until they they, they become ripe. And uh, with this this ongoing reflection of the fourth tetrad in mind, impermanence, dispassion cessation, relinquishment, then this is what the Buddha said, this is a great fruit, a great benefit. It's not just some little technique, this is of massive significance.